0: Hi, thanks for
1: listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you.
0: Let us pray. Most gracious God, we ask that you speak to us in love through Scripture and through the conversation of your Spirit. Amen. Two people shall become one, just as Christ is one with the church. This line, adapted from
1: Genesis 1, is often spoken in traditional wedding services. Now, obviously, two people becoming one does not mean that married people become the same person or even mirror images of each other. In premarital counseling and weddings, I frequently quote something Soren Kierkegaard said in his book, Either Or. The key to a happy marriage is for two people to live together without destroying the mystery of the other. As with faith in God, when you think that you have the other person all figured out, you have violated their personhood. And yet there is something to the notion that over the course of a long and healthy marriage, (laughs) Two people begin to share the same brain. They develop a shared wisdom about things, a wisdom that neither one would have come to independently of the other. This wisdom is forged less by the winning of arguments than by the instruction of love. I remember a man telling me, my wife loved arranging flowers. It was her thing. I supported her. I didn't realize how much I'd come to love flower arrangements until after she died. The instruction
0: of love. Isn't that how minds and hearts are best won? Consider Jesus and his followers.
1: I'm about to read something that Jesus says at the last meal that he has with his disciples before he is arrested, Jesus knows that this is the last opportunity he will have to speak to his disciples, and he wants to make it count. It lasts for four chapters. The part I will read is the most important thing he has to say, his deepest wish, his fervent hope for what they will do once he is gone from there.
0: Listen for the word of God as if it is God's loving instruction to you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has
1: greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I now call you friends because I've made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. You did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that's going to last so that the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you
0: these commands so that you will love one another. The word of the Lord. Think about it. How many times have you actually won someone over by arguing with them?
1: If you're good at it, maybe you could have taught Jesus a thing or two. When I think through the Gospels, I can think of only one time when in the midst of a debate with someone else who came into the conversation to win that debate, that Jesus won that person over. Only one instance where the other said something like, wow, you know what? I haven't thought about it that way. You know you're right. I'm going to have to step out of the Gospel of John to tell you about it. I want you to consider Mark chapter 12. It speaks to a series of debates that because they are begun with folks who intend to win and not to learn are arguments in disguise. A gathering of Jewish leaders who have their own differences with each other but are united in their opposition to Jesus approach Jesus when he is surrounded by a crowd. Now they act like they want to have a pleasant exchange of views, but it's pretty obvious that they want to demonstrate to those who are listening that they have the greater authority. They're the ones who know what they're talking about. First comes the Pharisee. Tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a gotcha question. The Jews who resent the Roman occupying force will not want Jesus to answer yes, and the Romans listening in will not want Jesus to answer no. Well, Jesus asks for a Roman coin, shows them the image of Caesar on that coin, and says, It's his, give it back to him. But you have the image of God in you,
0: give yourself to God. That's brilliant. And sure, Jesus won over. I'm sure many of those who are
1: listening in on this conversation, those listening in who do not have a dog in the fight might have thought, standing around, that, yeah, you know what? Paying taxes to whatever government is in charge is not the end of the world. But God's image is in me. I belong to God. But the Pharisee, who might have liked that answer if he had come up with it, did not like it at all because Jesus had come up with it and showed him up. The next who comes is a Sadducee. He has his own gotcha question because he wants to know about the resurrection and Sadducees don't believe in life after death. Oh, they're proud of being Jews and maybe believe in God, but way are way too smart to believe in anything like our perhaps having a life with God beyond what we know right here, right now. They remind me of today's new atheists who go out of their way to try to ridicule those who have faith and who also don't have their training in philosophical arguments and proofs. Hey, Jesus, if a man dies childless, his brother should marry the widow, right? Well, now hang with me, Jesus, on this. Let's say that there were seven brothers and they just keep dying. And she keeps marrying the next and the next and the next until she's married all seven. Who's her husband in heaven?
0: Huh? Huh? Huh?
1: Jesus gives a sideways answer to that question as well. Now, I don't think it's as brilliant as the answer he gave to the first, but I don't think Jesus is trying to be brilliant. Sometimes you give an answer just to get out of an argument. He basically says that they are right, that if they are right that God is the God of their people, their ancestors, the patriarchs of their family, their Jewish identity, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, then consider this, God is the God of the living, not the dead. Now again, we can imagine that folks who are listening in, folks who do not have an agenda, probably like this answer. I mean, really, when I think about my people being God's
0: people, when I think about my grandmother, Clap, my Aunt Mary, my sister, Jane, and when
1: we at Second Presbyterian think about Jack Earhart or Barbara Lemon, Alexa Cannon, or Sharon Jones, we can find comfort in what he says. They belong to God.
0: They bear God's image, and God is the God of the living, not the dead. But do you think that that Sadducee, for whom heaven is a hypothetical anyway, is satisfied?
1: Do you think that the new atheists are satisfied when someone says that they believe their loved ones have a home with God? The Sadducees can see heads nodding in agreement with Jesus so they know not to continue with their snark and sarcasm, and they withdraw. Then comes a scribe. He's called a lawyer in the other Gospels. He is really an authority in the Torah law of God. He's a Bible scholar. He's authority in the law by which Jews are to live, whether or not they pay taxes to Caesar. If Jesus has such a reputation for being a rabbi, if Jesus is such a great Bible scholar, then let him answer this question. Of all the commandments in the Torah, which one is the greatest? You can't give all scripture equal importance or Genocide would be permitted. Slaves would be returned to their masters and no one would eat on the Sabbath, even if they were starving. You can find those isolated passages if you want to find them. They know you can't do that. Scripture has to interpret scripture. And so he asked Jesus, Jesus, what is the command by which all other commands are to be judged? And then Jesus answers him. He says to the scribe, What he says to the disciples at their last meal in John's gospel. The answer is love. The greatest command is this.
0: Love God with all that you are. And love others as you have been loved. Now,
1: actually, some of you already have caught me. What he actually says is love others as you love yourself. I'll admit that I'm reading what Jesus says in John's gospel into his response to the scribe in Mark's gospel because I truly believe our passage from John reveals what Jesus really means when he says to the scribe, love others as you love yourself. If you know, if you really know what it is
0: to be loved by God, Love others that way. And here, for once,
1: Jesus wins an argument with someone who came into the argument with an agenda. He didn't convince the Pharisee. He did not convince the Sadducee. But he convinces the scribe. He didn't win the argument with the guy who hosted Jesus in his home, but then questioned Jesus keeping company with known sinners, but he wins this scribe over. He did not win the argument with the guy who was offended that his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath or the guy offended that he healed a man on the Sabbath, but he wins this argument with this scribe. He didn't even win the argument with the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness, the devil who just left for a while until he could tempt Jesus again on the cross. But he wins the scribe when he says this, as we can hear when he says this, Jesus, you're right, that is the greatest command. That sounds like a true miracle to me because in my memory, go check, and I might be missing another one, this is the only time I can think of of even Jesus actually winning an argument when the other has an
0: agenda. That sounds like a miracle, especially in our day and age. I have a question for you to consider. Again, what are the odds of an argument being won When minds are already made up.
1: An example. An investigation is being conducted right now about January 6th. Most of you who have gathered information already, you've watched the tapes. Maybe you've listened to the testimony. I don't know. Probably you have already your own strong conviction. So strong that now you're ready to go to battle with anyone who disagrees. Who can change your mind about what you think happened if they want to have an argument with you? And whose made-up mind do you think you can change by arguing with them? Minds can change. Hearts can change. But usually not through the judging, shaming, and zero-sum need to win that comes with arguments these days. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear, Jesus said, assuming that some ears are simply not willing to hear. And that's why I call this exchange with the scribe a miracle. This scribe has an agenda, his ego is involved because he is himself an authority on the Bible. A bunch of people are watching, and it feels like they are spectators in a sporting event to see who is going to win. And yet, When Jesus responds to his question, it's as if someone turns on a light dispelling the darkness. I'm not saying that the darkness was dispelled because Jesus tells the scribes something he did not know. The darkness dispelled is this whole adversarial spirit where inquisitors are trying to expose and shame Jesus. And when Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven, I don't think he's talking about content that the scribe has almost got it figured out. I don't think this is about content. I think he is talking about he and the scribe finding common ground when the others are trying to sow division.
0: That's kind of what love does, don't you think?
1: Love draws you out of yourself causes you to consider life from another's perspective. It establishes a relationship on which, over time, a shared wisdom can be gained. I've spent a lot of time in Mark's gospel, but my sermon is based on the passage from John, so let's go back to it now. John's gospel is very different from the others in that it's a gospel about conversation. It's a gospel about relationships. It's a gospel about the conversion of minds and hearts that happens over time. Toward the beginning of John's gospel, a Pharisee named Nicodemus approaches Jesus. Unlike the Pharisee who wanted to ask a gotcha question about paying taxes to Caesar, this Pharisee comes to Jesus with genuine curiosity. He's not like his peers, other Pharisees, who assume that he is a card-carrying member of their silo and see Jesus as a threat. He doesn't want to have a fight with Jesus. He wants to have a conversation. And yet he's intimidated by his peers, and so he comes to Jesus at
0: night. And they talk. They talk about faith. What faith really is. Is
1: it being born again, making some kind of effort to start over in life, to start anew, to do things differently? Or is faith being born from above, being remade by a relationship with God? And they go back and forth for a long time, 21 verses. And when they are done, we don't know that Nicodemus is convinced, but he is intrigued. And then you get. Glimpses in John's gospel of him changing and growing over time. He shows up two more times in the gospel, first defending Jesus but not endorsing him at a meeting with
0: other Pharisees, and then in broad daylight helping to bury Jesus. He is slowly won.
1: Then comes a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus is a Jew, she is a Samaritan. Different race, different culture. They think differently. They believe differently. He's a man, she's a woman, so they're not really supposed to have this unchaperoned conversation. And yet for the entirety of a very long chapter, They stay in conversation. They stay in relationship. They go back and forth. They talk about family. They talk about differences. You worship on a mountain. We worship at the temple in Jerusalem. But they actively seek to understand each other and find common ground. You know, Jesus says to her, we're going
0: to find a way somehow, someday to worship together. It's going to happen. We'll get there one day. And when the chapter is done, we don't know that Jesus has convinced the
1: Samaritan woman of anything, but she tells her neighbors and friends that she'd like to introduce them to someone who had such an ability to see things through her eyes.
0: It was as if he knew her better than she knew herself. She is being slowly won.
1: And then I could keep going. There are other long conversations in John's gospel, including arguments with authorities that don't get anywhere. But the best example of minds and hearts being slowly won is the disciples. Their relationship with Jesus began with his being their rabbi. And it takes time for them to learn to see through Jesus' eyes. They don't always get Jesus, and Jesus gets frustrated with them, but they hang in there with each other until the day comes when they have won each other over. And Jesus can say at that dinner, we're friends now. You still may not understand everything I've tried to teach you, but you know that I love you, and that's what I want you to show others when I'm gone. I want you to win people over, not by arguing with them, attacking them, trying to win them
0: or win over them, but I want you to win them by love. I want you to love others as I have loved you.
1: This past week, I listened to a podcast of a talk by Simeon Zoll. He suggested that we all have theories about how to change other people's minds and hearts. And he has this one simple question to ask
0: of your theory about how to win arguments. Does it work? Remember, he does not ask that question about
1: others who already agree with you. You can win all kinds of followers on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and you can earn money, you can exert power, you can gain control by becoming a star of your own. But what about winning minds and hearts in
0: conversations? Does it work? Shaming others, does that work? Does contempt or demonizing the
1: other work? As fun and often funny as they are, does snark and sarcasm work? Or does that all just make the other want to attack back or sneak away?
0: Prejudging others, does that work? Or does it make others want to hide their inner self from you?
1: Does signaling your virtue to expose another's flaws, does that work? Or does it make the other want to find reasons to show that you're a hypocrite? Because we're usually not as virtuous as we sometimes want to let on. Does it work to come at the other with an unpersuadable mindset? With your own unpersuadable mindset? Does that work? Does it work to cast the debate as either or, as if there is no common ground on which to stand? And does this work? Does gathering information and making clear and rational arguments, does that work? I say yes, that works more than the others, but research shows that's effective only when minds are not already made up. When minds are made up, Does that just make the other want to find their own information and construct their own arguments? Zan says that St. Augustine got it right a long time ago. The best way to get to a person's head is through the heart. Information is important. The gospel cannot be about believing lies. Reasoning is important. The gospel needs to be reasonable. But true transformation of what one believes and values comes of human engagement,
0: which comes of relationship, which comes of love.
1: At that final meal, Jesus could have said to the disciples, this is my number one command. Remember everything that I taught you and teach others that. Remember everything I told you to do and do that. Now, I would not have minded Jesus saying that. We Presbyterians are all about learning and doing. But Jesus said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to love others as I have loved you. Because he knew that by doing that, minds and hearts can be slowly won.
0: Second Presbyterian Finding Direction by Following Jesus